And uh, happy Father's Day. You, generally, the way it works in church is Mother's Day, people preach sermons about the moms and how they're the best people in the whole world and can do no wrong. And then on Father's Day, they tell the dads how terrible they are. And we love you enough that we don't preach about you on either day. Uh, so open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 12. We love you enough to just preach the gospel. Romans chapter 12, we are continuing in this glorious epistle that the Lord has given to us through our, our brother, Paul. Paul's one of my best friends. He just doesn't know me yet. We are picking up where we left off last week, but we've been, we've been laboring through this paragraph for a few weeks. It's surprisingly hard to get through a whole verse sometimes. But if you think that's annoying, I almost gave us two whole words in Greek this morning, and that was going to be the whole sermon. So you can be glad we're getting all the way through a whole verse. In verse number nine, hear now the word of the Lord. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word, for this good and pure and perfect gift that you have given to your people. Lord, for the, for the glorious truth that by your spirit working through your word, we can know our God, that our dead hearts have been made to live, our bondage to slavery broken and we've been set free, united to Christ, hidden in him with a glorious inheritance, an unshakable hope. I pray, Lord, that by your spirit, through your word this morning, you would accomplish your good purposes in us, among us, through us. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're continuing through this set of directives on how we are to live out our Christian lives. What are the, the things that mark the life of the true Christian? When the gospel transforms a life, what exactly does it produce in a person? And in verses 9 through 13 that we just read again together, Paul gives us these 13 directives, these rapid-fire statements on how to live our lives as Christians within the body of Christ, within the church. After verse 13, he's going to expand that out to living our lives in the world at large, but this paragraph is aimed right at believers and how it is that we live together in the body of Christ. And so we've covered the first eight of these directives already over the last three weeks, and this morning in verse 12, we're looking at, at the next three, and as we've done over the last three weeks, we're just letting Paul's sermon outline that he gives to us in each verse be our three main headings for our message this morning. And so the first we see here is rejoice in hope. Our, our world knows what a commodity hope is, what a precious commodity. The medical professionals know, know well that the overwhelming evidence that hope makes an incredible physiological difference in a person when they're suffering a major illness. To, to have hope that you could recover and live and even thrive 
has actual medical benefit. To have despair and give up actually causes great detriment to a person. And, and hope, essentially, this, this word is, it's, it's having a good feeling about the future. Its opposite of, is fear or, or, or anxiety, having, having anxiety about what the future holds. And we loosely use this word hope to talk about like we, we're just hoping for the best. We hope everything works out. That's not how Paul's talking here. If hope just means the power of positive thinking, we're just crossing our fingers and, and wishing really hard, then we are all in a lot of trouble if that's all we've got going for us. I, I hoped that I'd win a national championship in tennis as a college athlete. And I actually made it to the national championship tournament my senior year, and I lost in the first round in singles. In the fourth round in doubles, I didn't even come anywhere close to winning a national championship. It was completely unrealistic that I would win a national championship. Hope is only as good as its object. My hope, oh, wouldn't it be nice if I walked away with a championship ring from all this? No, hope's only as good as its object. If we've just got our fingers crossed, wishing for the best, if we're just repeating that mantra from the little engine that could, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, then we're all in a lot of trouble. If that's what we got going for us in this life. There'd be no way for us to even obey this command that, that Paul gives to us, rejoice in hope, because our hope would be empty. Our hope would be fleeting. It would just be wistful longing that everything was going to turn out okay. The reality is we, we look around at the world around us, and even the unbelieving world, people may get what they think they want for a short amount of time, but that, that kind of hope is ultimately always dashed away by the rocks of reality. The real world will catch up to that kind of hope at some point. And that hope will be smashed by circumstances. Certainly, if nothing else, it will finally be destroyed by death. Biblical hope, however, is different. Biblical hope is not wishful thinking. Biblical hope is confident trust in God, confident expectation about the future, confidently counting on God's promises. Biblically, hope here, what Paul's talking about here, is the certainty of trust in a God-ordained future. One commentator says in the New Testament we see hope is located in a person, in Christ, in a place, heaven, in a perspective that radically reorients the Christian life. But biblical hope, as opposed to wishful thinking, cannot and will not ever be disappointed. Biblical hope is, is confidence in God. It's confidence in God's promises, and God has never lied God is able to fulfill all of his promises. His promises always come through. He, he has already secured a future for his children that nothing can take away. This hope cannot be frustrated, but unbelievers have no such hope. Nothing exists like that for them. It's not that they never think about the future and, and, and think things might go well for them. It's not that they never have good feelings about what might be in store for them. It's just that they have no ground to have those good feelings. It's not in keeping with reality. None of us have a guarantee about what lies ahead for us in this life. None of us are even promised to make it through this day on this earth. 
And what awaits anyone who is outside of Christ when he breathes his last breath is that any hope he had will be immediately taken from him when his eyes are open to see the reality of his eternal situation. All that's left for those outside of Christ when they have breathed their last breath in this life is abject hopelessness, dark and utter despair, unending torment under the just and righteous and holy and good wrath of God forever and ever and ever. Dante, in his 14th century epic poem describing his imaginings of hell, imagined a sign over the entrance to hell, and many of you know the expression on this sign, abandon hope, all ye who enter here. That's all that awaits. But for the Christian, hope is an essential component of living our Christian lives. First Peter 1 says, we were born again into what? Into a living hope. It's ours. It's, it's our inheritance. We were, we were born again into it. It's ours by birthright, this living hope. So what does it mean when Paul tells us here, rejoice in hope? This word rejoice just means to take joy in something. It means to locate our joy somewhere, in something, in some place. And so rejoicing in hope means to locate our joy in the confident expectation of God and his promises, to to rejoice in them, to be glad in them, to delight in them, to take joy in them, in God and His promises. We're, we're instructed here to locate our joy in anticipation, to be glad about something that we have not yet come into the full possession and experience of, to take joy in something that we're looking forward to. If you've ever planned a vacation, you know what this is like experientially. The joy of vacation isn't just about the enjoyment of the time away itself. It's also about the enjoyment of several months ahead of time when you're planning it out, when you're thinking about it, when you're looking forward to it, when you're dreaming about it, when you're being distracted by it. There's joy in anticipation. And in a very real sense, that's the Christian life. In a much greater sense. We look forward to, we dream about, we're even somewhat distracted from the trials of this life and the, the anxieties of this life as we long for heaven, for, for our home, for our eternal rest in God's presence. Paul says, locate your hope right there because that's unshakable. There are bad hope locations. The Bible gives us a whole bunch of them, places that, are, that, that we should not place our hope. Riches. These things that Scripture tells us about are the places that people do place their hope in this world. Riches, which are so fleeting. We're seeing what's happening in our economy right now, and if our hope is placed in riches, then we are filled with turmoil living out our days. I don't know how anyone could sleep at night. Psalm 52, 7 says, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trust in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Health is not a reliable hope. Ecclesiastes 12 tells us harder days lie ahead for every single one of us. As we age, we say amen, we know. Man is not a place 
put your hope? Putting your hope in other people, putting your hope in, in human ingenuity or in politics, God forbid. Jeremiah 17.5, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. It's a misplaced hope to put your trust and your hope in people instead of God. Friendships can never produce true and lasting hope. Oh, they are a grace. But they can never do that. Loved ones die. Relationships change. Friends might not be there for you when you need them. National strength and security is a misplaced hope. Hosea 10, 13. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Was it wrong for a nation to have a strong standing army and for us to say we ought to? No, it's definitely not wrong. But if, if, if our trust is in our nation, if our trust is in our security, it is a misplaced hope. Isaiah 31, 1 says, Woe to you who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Our religious inheritance is a misplaced hope. Our, our, our tradition, apart from the knowledge of the true God, is what I mean by that. Jeremiah 7, 4 says, Do not trust these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The, the people had, had treated their spiritual inheritance, the, the trappings of religious culture that, that, they, that were passed down to them from their parents as something of a talisman, as something of a good luck charm. They, they thought, I'm safe. No matter how I live, no matter what's going on, as long as this temple is here, then, then we're safe. And what God reveals through the prophet Jeremiah is, if you don't have God himself, the temple is nothing. The temple can do nothing for you. Trusting in our religious works, these, these external forms that people trust in is a misplaced hope. There was a man named Rabbi Yohanan Zakai. He, he was a Jewish rabbi during the time of the apostles. And on his deathbed, he began to weep. And as his disciples were gathered around them, they asked him, Rabbi, why are you weeping? Here's what he said to them. There are two ways before me, one to the Garden of Eden, or heaven, and the other to hell. And I do not know on which one God leads me. How could I not weep? This rabbi was known as the Lamp of Israel. That's what they called him. In fact, that's how his disciples asked him, Lamp of Israel, why do you weep? He was hailed in his day as the premier teacher of what it looked like to be a follower of the God of Israel. And his hope was based entirely in his own religious duty and performance. And in the end, it was revealed to be worthless. It was revealed to be misplaced. Another rabbi died 200 years after him. He died in... in 279 named Yohanan Bar Napa. And on his deathbed, he asked them, don't bury me in white and don't bury me in black. Bury me in neutral shades. And they said, why do you care what color you're buried in? He said, because I don't know where I'm going to end up. And so if I spend eternity with either the righteous or the wicked, I don't want to feel out of place. What a tragedy. To have no hope to have no hope, 
In our community, we see the great trust our Amish friends and family members have in external religious forms. Great trust. And yet with all of it, assurance of salvation is nowhere to be found. It's even considered arrogant. No confidence that your sins have truly been wiped away. No confidence that you'll stand before God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth with a clean record. Any hope in our own merit, any hope in, in religious external forms is misplaced and empty hope. The truth is any idol at all, anything we put our hope in apart from God is misplaced hope. Habakkuk 2 verse 18, what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, where its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes a speechless idol? Well, we might look at that. We might look at those physical objects of idolatry that Habakkuk is addressing and go, yeah, how dumb. Like Isaiah says, you chop a tree down and you use half of the wood to make an idol and half of the wood to start a fire to cook your food over. How, how, how do you know which one's God and which one's just for cooking? That was a paraphrase of Isaiah, by the way. He said it better than that. We look at that and we go, oh, how dumb. But the truth is, friends, when we set an idol up in our heart, whatever it is that we go after, personal achievement or, or fame or fortune or relationships or possessions, whatever it is that we choose to love more than God, we are carving it out for ourselves. We're fashioning it with our hands and we are bowing down to this thing that we have created. The real object of idolatry is self. I want to do whatever I have to do for this idol so that this idol will give me what I want. That's the heart of idolatry, and that is false hope. Our idols never transcend ourselves, and we need hope in something much, much bigger than ourselves. So instead, we're, we're instructed to look to God, to rejoice in hope, to consider who he is, to consider his promises, and in light of that, rejoice in hope. What are, what are the promises God has made to us? They're astounding. We have cause to rejoice. Psalm 1611 promises that the presence of the Lord, in the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2 promises that those who come to him, God will give unending rivers and bounties of delight. Daniel 12, 2 and 3 says, those who trust in him will shine like stars forever. Romans 8, 29 promises that those who love Christ will be conformed to Jesus' image, free from sin, glorified with him, sharing in his inheritance 1 Corinthians 15, 52 says we will put on immortality, no longer subject to the curse, no longer subject to the fall, no, no longer sub, subject to the, the trappings of this mortal existence. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 56 and 57 says that, that, that we will have eternal victory over death. 2 Peter 3 Promises the new heavens and the new earth. Hebrews 11, we're promised a better country, a better home. The best of all the promises, Revelation 21, verse 3, I heard a loud voice 
from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. God with us. And we with him. We, we will be with him in unmediated fellowship forever. This is just some of the promises of God to his people. And God has secured them. God has secured by grace an eternal, infinite goodness that puts to shame every difficulty we face in this life. If we put the two things in a scale, if we hold them up side by side, if your hope is located in heaven, there is absolutely nothing in this world that could take that from you. No temporary thing. No temporary setback, no temporary trial, no temporary suffering or tribulation. They cannot take away your joy. They cannot take away the content and the assurance of real hope because what is set outside of this world cannot be taken away by what's inside this world. The Christian's hope then lies beyond our circumstances. It lies beyond what we feel and what we experience. It lies beyond anything this world can touch. So why is joy and hope a mark of the true Christian? Well, because it's, it's evidence of this eternal perspective. It's evidence that we understand and believe this truth. It means you know that this earth isn't your home. It means that you believe God's promises are true. One commentator says, the hope for the Christian is located in the, the security of salvation by Christ. No one can take away what Christ has done. He says it's located in the superiority of, of knowing Christ. Jesus is better than anything else. He says it's located in the sweetness of eternity with Christ. That's the true glory of heaven. It's not these physical descriptors. No, we will be with him. That's the glory. This rejoicing in hope marks the life of all true Christians. It's, it's, it's not, though, a giddy optimism. It's not always feeling happy-go-lucky and always having goosebumps and never feeling depressed and never feeling down. But it is the Holy Spirit's work in the life of the believer. It's, it's untouched by circumstances. The world can't do a thing to it. It's built on the solid rock of God and his unshakable promises. Christian, hold fast to the promises of God. If you do, if you will hold fast to God's eternal promises, you will be able to endure the temporary trials of this world. That's all the world's got, temporary trials. The world can't do one eternal thing not one. And the world can give you the worst that it's got to throw at you. And, and oh, some of you have experienced the worst that this world has to offer. The worst pain. And in the midst of the worst suffering, the worst tribulation, the worst this world has to throw at us when we are in despair and depression, we remain a child of God with an inheritance that is unshakable. 
That's a soft pillow for your head at night if you'll let it be. That this hope will actually produce in us a settled joy, even in the worst of times. That brings us to our, to our next point. First, I need to ask you, Christian, are you rejoicing in hope? Are you locating your joy in God and His promises in the anticipation of the fullness of your inheritance? We need each other for this. We need each other if we're going to live this way, to rejoice in hope. Rejoicing in hope is contagious. When I see you rejoicing in the hope of your salvation and, then, and, and God, it makes me want to do that too. It reminds me. Second then, be patient in tribulation. I had to cut so much out of my sermon because it was going to just be those two Greek words and that's all we talked about this morning. Be patient in tribulation. Be, be patient in, it means persevere. Literally, it means to live under, to, to, to abide, to remain under it. Think about that command, to abide in tribulation, to, to remain under, to live under this tribulation. Some of you love camping. Some of our empty pews might be because people love camping too much this morning. I love not camping, so we've got sort of a thing in common. But whatever camping you like to do, and it might be roughing it in a tent, it might be you have an RV that's nicer than my house, whatever it is, you're leaving behind some of the comforts of your home, right, when you go camping, even in the nice RV. And so right away when you get to the campsite, what do you do? Well, you you arrange your temporary living space. This is where I'm going to be living for the next whatever amount of time I'm here, and so I'm going to, going to, going to, going to get everything in place, going to get it all ready. This is going to be my home for a little bit, and so I want it to be as comfortable as possible. Well, Christian, what Scripture tells us is true about us is we are temporary residents here. This is our temporary residence. It's a place that we're dwelling, but it's just for a little while. We're camping we're trekking, we're sojourning. The Bible refers to our bodies as tents, tents that are going to get torn down. That's why I still eat cookies. It's getting torn down. Some of you are not going to listen to anything else I say in the rest of this sermon. You're appalled. I know, I'm a sinner. Scripture refers to our lives here as a sojourn. This is not our real home. The new heavens and the new earth are our real home, our permanent home, our, our future eternal home. And the, the Bible has given a name. Some, some campers give a name to their campsite, and the Bible gives a name to our campsite in this life, and the name is tribulation, suffering, affliction. And so Paul gives us this command, persevere under tribulation. Abide under it. Live there patiently. That's the command. Tribulation is, it's, it's, it's affliction, it's oppression, it's, it's harassment, it's vexation. In the New Testament, this same word is used for external pressures that come against us, imprisonment, poverty, derision, physical duress, inner sorrow, anxiety, fear, mortal threat. These things are the inescapable realities that the Christian faces in this world. This word's also used for the sufferings of Christ in his incarnate body. It's used for the future judgment of God on all unbelievers. 
And this idea of tribulation, of, of affliction, is fundamental to the Christian life. This command to live patiently under it defines Christian life on this earth. So, so how are we to patiently endure under hard times? First, we just need to accept that this is an inescapable reality. We're not getting out of it. It's normal. It's to be expected. It's, it's part of the deal that we will have suffering and trials in this world. Jesus says this, John 16, These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But I've overcome the world. Acts 14, 22, the, the disciples are encouraged and strengthened in the faith, saying through much tribulation we must enter the kingdom of God. 1 Thessalonians 3, 3, Paul says, You yourselves know that we were destined for these afflictions. 1 Peter 4, 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Romans 5, 2, we've, we've been introduced into this grace in which we now stand, and we also rejoice in our sufferings. You can try to ignore this reality, and redefine the Christian life and say, oh, we have no, we shouldn't have any suffering, we shouldn't have any affliction. You, could, you can listen to the prosperity preachers and the lies that they peddle, but the reality is tribulation is normal and you're going to face it. Second, embrace the divine purpose of affliction in the Christian life. It's not meaningless. You'll face suffering and affliction and tribulation and none of it is meaningless. God has his purposes in our facing difficulty. Romans 5, verse 3, we discover that God's purposes are our own perseverance, our proven character and hope, and hope does not disappoint. That's God's purpose in our suffering. In Hebrews 12, we discover that God's fatherly discipline is for our good, our holiness, and the peaceful fruit of righteousness. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18, we see that our present sufferings are producing in us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs the weightiness of our suffering. To the extent that Paul says, in light of our eternal weight of glory, our sufferings are light and momentary. Oh, but when we're going through them in the moment, they feel anything but light and momentary, don't they? They're only light and momentary when the scales are tipped with an eternal perspective. They're only light and momentary in a certain context, and that is when measured against this eternal weight of glory. If we don't have that, they're not light. They're not momentary. James 1 tells us the divine purpose for affliction in the Christian life is the testing, endurance, perfection, completion and lacking nothing in maturity for the Christian. How, how do we get mature in the Christian life? Well, we let our afflictions and our troubles and our trials produce their intended results. Mark 4 tells us the spiritual trials reveal phony Christians. 2 Corinthians 1 says, trials give the one facing the trial real experience with the comfort of God. And then a platform 
to comfort others with the comfort with which we've been comforted. 2 Corinthians 1, 6, our trials and afflictions are being used by God to produce salvation in the life of others. They see you suffering in hope. They see you rejoicing in hope, and it lifts their eyes to God. It causes them to see that the, the gospel's promises are true, that its power is real. Colossians 1.24, the various sufferings that Christians face are themselves presentations of the gospel's truth. So to sum that up, what, what is God's purpose for, for tribulation in the life of the Christian? One commentator says it's for refining our character, renewing our hope, revealing our faith, rewarding faithfulness, and representing the gospel. There's meaning in it. Third, then, we need to cultivate, then, in light of that, the right response to affliction in the Christian life. What do we do? What does Scripture tell us to do with our affliction and our suffering? James 1, 2 says, count it as joy. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18 says to give thanks. Romans 5, 3 says to exalt God. Romans 8, 18 says, do the math. The present sufferings are not worth comparing. They're not as big. They don't weigh as much as the eternal glory that's going to be revealed in us. Romans 12, 12 now says to abide under it patiently. It simply means to trust God even when circumstances are the very hardest. And even when those difficult circumstances are not changing the way we wish they would. It's not an easy thing to do. But what God commands, he provides the strength for, friend. In the midst of our suffering and tribulation and affliction, for the Christian, God's kindness is there. His nearness is there. His presence is there. We sang it in that great old hymn this morning. The sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is around me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. Even if no one else knows what you're dealing with, God knows. And he loves you if you are his. He's promised things to you that cannot be taken away. They're already yours. And when it seems like all else is lost, we can hold fast to this truth. Again, we need each other for this. To remind each other of God's promises, to help carry the burden of this life's tribulations. Third then, I promise to hurry. Be constant in prayer. Be constant in prayer. The New American Standard says, be devoted to prayer. Constant. Devoted. This word is also translated often in the New Testament as continuing. And, and these three words together sort of capture the picture of this. There is to be a constant, continuing devotion to prayer, a closeness to prayer. That's the literal sense of the word, to, to, to be right up next to something, close to something, an attachment to it. There's to be an attachment, an intentional attachment to prayer all the time. What prayer really is at its core is dependence on God. There's nothing that expresses our dependence on God more than prayer does. This, it's the recognition of the creature-creator divide. That, that is, that God is God, and I am not. I depend on him for everything. I depend on him for the next breath that I'm going to breathe. 
And sometimes we don't feel that. Sometimes we don't feel the weight of it. Sometimes, if we're being honest, we live like practical atheists. It doesn't mean that we stop believing that God exists. But prayerless living is practical atheism. It's living as though I'm independent from God. I'm doing just fine here. I don't depend on Him. I don't need Him every moment. But the prayer-filled life is dependent living, not independent living. We cry out to God, help at all times. Help, I need you. It's also the language of adopted sons and daughters. But by the Holy Spirit who indwells us, we call out to God, Abba, Father. Calling out to our Father who knows us who loves us, who knows what we need, who knows how to give good gifts to us. To to have constant devotion to prayer is to cry out in humble, affectionate, reverent love for your Father. It, It is to confess your total dependence on Him. It is to anticipate heaven, when all of our prayers will be turned into praise and we will no longer need to pray. Prayer is trust. Prayer is reliance. Prayer is dependence on God. And Martin Luther said this of prayer, there is no work quite so difficult as praying to God. As living this kind of life, being constantly, continually devoted to prayer, there's nothing harder. Well, why is that? Well, because the world and the flesh and the devil are constantly fighting against your becoming a person who is devoted to prayer. That's why Paul doesn't exhort us here to pray more eloquent prayers. He doesn't tell us to pray longer. He's not referring to the act of prayer so much as he is referring to the attitude of prayer in the life of the Christian that marks the life of the Christian. Continuing in prayer, being devoted to prayer is not a five-minute exercise or even a 60-minute exercise. It is a way of life, continually attaching ourselves to prayerfulness, to dependence on God. One of the best ways we can cultivate all of this in our lives, all of these things, these, these, these three things that Paul instructs us to, rejoicing in hope, Patience in tribulation. Constant devotion to prayer. One of the best things we can do for ourselves, one of the best ways we can cultivate all of those things in our life is through Scripture. What a gift God has given to us. We should come to the Word of God in our Bible reading in order to meet with the God of the Word. And... That intentional time set aside is just a foretaste of a day filled with dependence on God. We set that side of time, in the mor- time aside in the morning and we, we come to the Word of God in order to meet the God of the Word. It sets the stage for us to remember all day long whose we are. It sets the stage for us to remember all day long our need for Him, our dependence on Him. 
And then you can see, I, I hope, how all of these things, one leads to another, leads to another. They all relate to each other, going backwards and forwards. You, you find yourself at every step of the day thinking about God, depending on God, leaning on Him, worshiping Him, thanking Him, crying out to Him, unburdening your burdens to Him, glorifying Him. You find yourself rejoicing in hope. And this joy and hope produces in us a settled, faith-filled patience in tribulation. All of this is fueled by prayer. And all of this is fueled for prayer. It all works together. Going backwards and forwards. In such a way that ultimately, we remain in a constant state of dependence and worship and trust in God. That's the command we have here from Paul in this verse. What a glorious and kind command it is to live this way. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, we don't take that lightly. Your word is alive full of power, full of life, able to supernaturally accomplish all of your good purposes by your Spirit. That your word is pure and perfect, completely without error, never misleading, but always pointing us to the truth, always revealing to us your righteous and good and perfect will and your good and perfect purposes. Lord, would you cause us to see you more clearly? Would you cause us to glory in you? Would you cause us to to rejoice in you at all times? Lord, to be filled with the hope that comes from knowing you and believing your promises. Lord, would you cause in us such a deep and abiding and settled joy that, Lord, even in the worst of tribulation, even the worst of affliction and suffering, we bear up under it in hope. Believing your word is true, that this light momentary suffering is not worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory. Lord, that all of this would cause us to fasten ourselves to you in dependence and in worship and in communion. Pray, Lord, that you would continue to shape us and mold us into the likeness of Christ, that that, Lord, you would, each, each, one, each one of us, Lord, would, would grow and deepen in our faith and in our trust and, and in our lives of obedience and fruitfulness for your kingdom's sake and for your glory. And that you would use this church, Maple Grove, to be a, a shining light, a beacon of hope in this world. Where your joy is clearly seen. Where your power to uphold is, is clearly displayed, even in the most difficult of times where reverence is evident as we live our lives in the presence of our almighty holy God. We do pray, Lord, that you be glorified in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.